0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. The prime minister shuts down hecklers at a Ukraine rally last week, and we cover all things in American politics with Reggie Cicchini's weekly Washington Report. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's focus on what's going on in uh, Canadian politics. A lot of concern now about possible foreign intervention, especially in the last two federal elections. And uh, there's some pros and cons to this. Uh, It's become a political football, as you might expect these days. Uh, And now there is a new investigation. uh, The results of that investigation have been released. An assessment of the work done by this uh, panel that was looking into this uh, has released their report. And I don't know if it's actually cleared anything up or not. Emily Jovesky has some of the details for us.
1: The Privy Council Office says the assessment has been sent to the Prime Minister's office and the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. A critical election incident public protocol created to monitor and report threats during the 2019 and 2021 elections is required to publish a post-election assessment of its work. The 2021 report is still not available more than a year after Canadians went to the polls, while Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government is facing pressure over the issue of election interference. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press.
0: So where are we going on this? Is there going to be a full-fledged inquiry into this? Uh, the government, I don't think, really wants to go that way. To uh, talk about that and lots of other things happening uh, in our nation's capital, so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, welcome to the show. A uh, Happy Monday to you.
1: Happy Monday, Bill. Thanks for having me. I-
0: I got the sto- The sense that uh, that when this story broke, and I know there have been hints about this over the last couple of months, really, uh, that the government tried to say, hey, nothing really to see here. It's just a minor little blip uh, that, that happens, and this happens in elections all the time. Uh, I know that Pierre Pollio was trying to make a big deal out of this, but the fact that CSIS uh, seems to be uh, chirping in on this as well indicates that there may be more than meets the eye here?
1: Well, that's the thing, because uh, to have this coming out of thesis is extremely unusual. And you've got, like, it seems to me these two drops, right, where last Friday, you know, about a week and a half ago, we we had this, the report from Bob Fife, and then this following Friday we've got something else. And so, I mean, as many people have said, there is going to be a certain amount of you know, attempted interference in elections from other countries. And this is why we all keep tabs on this. This is why we try to keep track of it, because we know it's going to happen. And we, you know, there's a certain amount of, um, you know, that's the way the world works. But again, that you, you speak to this panel, like part of that is is really to get a sense of when is it to the point that we have to worry about it? And when is it to the point that Canadians should be told about it? And so I think what we're seeing now is, you know, do, is this a case where we ought to be very concerned? Is this the start of something? What's really going on here? And so, yeah, it seems to me that this is now taking on a kind of level of urgency that we didn't see before.
0: Well, and and as one individual we had on the show last week was saying, he says, okay, we know that it happened. Uh, We're not quite sure how extensive it was, but he says it clearly wasn't that effective. Uh, But then he he added a little PS to that. And he says, but if you, let them keep doing this. They're going to get better at it. And and what's the, what are the consequences of that?
1: Well, that's it. Like because I think like it's one thing to say, look, this hasn't had an effect on the outcome in the sense that whatever the the interference was, it didn't change the outcome of the election. But you know what? Like that's an unsatisfactory answer to me because elections are not just about the ends. It's also about the process. It's all. It's very much about the process, and we have a public interest in ensuring that the administration of elections is fair. And that's, you know, that threshold is not met just by saying, oh, look, the person who won would have won anyway. And, you know, it it doesn't give people a sense of trust in institutions, which is failing anyway, by the way. So this is the last thing we need when we've got voter turnout in the toilet and we've got, you know, general uptake and interest in formal politics is, is waning and troublesome anyway. So to have this on top of it, the sense that, you know what, we actually are not even sure if the elections are, you know, we aren't even able to be running them properly because we're not sure, you know, what the level of interference is. Like, that's that's a major problem. And yes, of course, if we get the sense that it was so much that it might have had an effect on an outcome, then that makes it even worse. But I think even even aside from that, we have to protect the administration and the institutions as they are, even if we can't say the outcome would have been different
0: uh by the way i mentioned ceases the the, the reason that they're chiming in on this right now is because they basically said look we warned the government about this back in 2019 and it didn't look like they did anything about it how how worried should we be about that
1: well that's the thing and that's where i think the narrative comes in around the possible liberal um interest in this if i can put it that way so it's you know it's not that the the allegations or the story at this point are that, you know, there's there is a cross the board influence and it's not about any particular party. It's, you know, kind of affecting every riding. Like it would be it would be one thing if the story was that, it wouldn't necessarily be better, but it would be different. But in this case, the, the narrative is about um a liberal benefit, right? Like the, the Chinese prefer a liberal minority. Not that the Chinese can calibrate a liberal minority, but this sense that they are willing to work um and they're willing to get involved in elections on behalf of particular candidates that they have preferences about which candidates over other candidates and that they're watching that closely and that they're actually watching the differences between the party uh, platforms. They don't want a conservative government. And then it starts to look like, okay, well, are the liberals not making a big fuss out of this because it's not bothering them because the Chinese prefer a liberal government? And then even if that's not the, the reality on the ground, the perception of that is a major problem. And again, this speaks to the integrity of the institutions. It needs to be better than just the, the letter of the law. It needs to be something that can pass a kind of public trust test so that people want to engage in democracy and people trust it. And so at this point, I think, you know, there's enough people having this conversation that they, there's something to worry about. And I think, as, as Dick Fadden put it, who is, you know, previously a top security guy in the country, why not have an inquiry? And when you put it like that, I think there's a little bit more pressure on the government. It's not just a partisan thing people who know things about this are saying, look, why don't we take a closer look?
0: Well, especially because what little we do know in the public uh, suggests that maybe this wasn't as effective as maybe the Chinese even wanted it to be. Although it, it looks like it had a, a major th- a, a factor in at least two of the elections out in British Columbia, anyway. Uh, yeah. But they, the Chinese, certainly have the infrastructure in place. I mean, the, the you know the disinformation campaign apparently is well in order. We we know that they've infiltrated a number of different organizations with uh, people that are sympathetic to, to the Chinese Communist Party. So it looks like they're laying the groundwork for this. And I think, isn't it beholden upon the government to say, let's look into this and see exactly what is going on?
1: And I mean, exactly. And also just like from the liberals' perspective, why not put this to rest? Like you don't want this narrative hanging out there that you uh, didn't do enough to address and deal with the kinds of accusations and allegations around Chinese interference that might benefit the liberals. Like why in the world would you want to leave that out there, that's and and not deal with it up front, like not take it on, just head on and deal with it. Because the Conservatives are going to use it against you. Not And and this is another part. I'm not sure that election administration is going to become the issue. Even if Pierre Polyev, who is looking good in the polls and has a whole bunch of money and might want to take advantage of of his lead while the iron is hot kind of thing, even if he goes to election or forces an election or works for the other parties to force an election sometime in the next year, I'm not sure that Chinese interference in elections would be the key ballot issue. I think he'd bring it back to affordability. But is this something that he can put in the umbrella of liberal incompetence, liberal corruption, like those sorts of narratives that tend to stick to the liberals anyway? Is this one more thing that Pierre Polyev can say, look, we can't trust Justin Trudeau to govern this country because look what happened.
0: When uh, the prime minister... Pretty much poo-hooed the idea of, of a full mm-hmm. inquiry. Uh, he did suggest that uh, that he had faith in the parliamentary committee that was going to be looking into this. Uh, I, I, I got to tell you, Lloyd, like, I, I don't share that enthusiasm or that faith in the committees, as <laughs> as we've seen. In, in, well, and you and I have talked about this many times. Historically, I mean, these just become you know parochial punching bags, you know, for especially in a minority parliament, because these committees, of course, are dominated by opposition members. And are they really going to be seeking the truth, or just looking at this as an opportunity to, to take shots at the government? And you know, we we haven't seen much in the way of conclusive evidence or, or you know, that, that kind of investigative work that we really want from this committee right now. It's just going to turn into a political football, isn't it?
1: Well, that's it. I mean, the analysis that you just gave could be completely appropriately applied to basically any committee, right? Yeah. And like, whatever it is that they're work they're looking at, whether it's you know, looking into the implementation of a program, or they're looking into spending, or they're looking into, for example, I don't know if you, if you watched as closely as I did because this is my thing. Um, I watched very closely the committee, looking into um, it, addressing the the issues or the accusations around Dominic Barton and McKinsey and the contracts, and that's going to keep going. And mm-hmm. it's like, look, you know, this is a pretty significant issue, actually. Like, if the government is outsourcing. The advice function of the public service or they're not or there's an opportunity for you know really good contract work to complement the advice of the public service like why aren't we asking those questions let's get to the bottom of this but instead the politicians on the committee seem not to be able to avoid the temptation to just score political points and go after this you know maybe barton is trudeau's friend kind of thing and so like it's bad enough when they do that in that case but if this is the approach that's going to be taken in a parliamentary committee that's designed you know, that's supposed to be looking into interference in elections. Like we can't afford to have that investigation be hijacked by partisan interest. We just can't. And so I'm, I'm with you. And another thing is this is really, I think this isn't the type of stuff that you deal with every day. This is like, I think probably pretty complicated stuff. This is, you know, national security, I don't even know if the MPs would be able to see everything. I mean, I'm I'm not sure that, you know, what are they going to be able to get access to all of the documents and everything that would be required. And so I'm not sure that this is the way to do it, you know, given the fact that a lot of that is going to be highly sensitive. And I'm not sure that it's going to be something that's going to be able to operate like a regular committee.
0: Yeah, and I got that sense too from uh, some of the folks with CSIS or associated with CSIS that basically said, you "No, know, uh, you can't ha- have everything you want." Uh, talking to the parliamentarians, yeah. <laughs> loose lips sink ships, obviously, and they know that there's going to be a leak. That tends to happen in Ottawa, as as you well know. But do they have any choice at this stage? I mean, when you look at this, you know, I'm thinking of the the you know the backroom people. They're planning strategies here for both parties. And uh, this should have been a week that the liberals were celebrating the health care deal and the provinces signing on yep. and, and, and their increased uh, commitment to, to Ukraine with more tanks and more money going there. Uh, those stories have been buried by this.
1: Oh, 100 percent, because, I mean, this is this is something that I think, too, has been a, a long time coming. Right. Like we've we've been talking about the possibility of Chinese influence in and in interference for a long time. There has been, you know, the same kind of conversations happening in the U.S. and in other five ice countries. And so this is, you know, something that people, I think, have been very concerned about and have been thinking about it as a sort of what if this happens? But now we, we've got, you know, th- this conversation has moved to the point that CESIS is saying, hey, look, we've, we have tried to brief on this. We have tried to get through on this and we're not. And so I think at this point, this has become a far more critical issue for the government. And I'm not sure that other attempts to sort of change the narrative, because that's what they do in politics. If something's messy and on fire over here, they try to distract with something else. But I'm not sure that there's something that's really going to be able to capture the attention of people that will turn us away from the possibility that our elections are are vulnerable. And so I think this is honestly like not again, not that I'm saying this should be a a big moment for the, the to make it a partisan thing. But I have to think that the other parties, including the NDP, are going to have to indicate where they stand on this.
0: There seemed to be a, almost a hesitancy in bygone years that uh, Canada and, and, frankly, a number of other uh, G seven countries uh, were a little hesitant to, to really bring the hammer down on China because mm. they're a, a huge economy, and you know you don't want to get these guys angry at you because you know they start with sanctions, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and you don't want to make them any more angry. But that that ship has pretty much sailed now, hasn't it? I mean, we may as well come down on them because they're going to do this sort of stuff anyway.
1: Well, exactly, and I mean, like even as we've seen how our relationship with China has been quite tense over the last number of years, Uh, the two Michaels being one example of, of, you know, very tense relationships between the two countries. And there's been a lot of pressure on Canada to determine where are we going to be in terms of our relationship with China. And I think once the the two Michaels came home, that pressure was even greater. It's like, look, now, okay, now this immediate crisis is solved. Now what are we going to do? And so it seems to me that there's been a number of different narratives coming out of the government on this but but a lot of them have focused on on a bi- like a multilateral approach and diversifying our relationships in the Indo-Pacific region so that there's not the same dependence on China like it you know we're a soft small smallish power but at the same time we've been thinking about how we can work in ways that will make us less vulnerable to China's place in the world and so where does that leave us now and I mean, for the love of God, we can't, the, the right answer can't be we're not going to do anything if they're trying to influence election outcomes.
0: and process. Uh, uh, to, to that point, i got about a minute left here. Is that that Privy Council report that apparently is on the Prime Minister's desk right now, is that ever going to see the light of the day?
1: I don't know. I mean, I think there's going to be renewed conversations around the point of this panel too, right? Like at what point yeah. do you, is the threshold met for you to tell the public that there's possible interference in an election? Is that going to make things better or worse? But I mean, is is that threshold tied to the outcome of the election? Or is there going to be more of a process-based thing where, look, if there's tampering to a certain effect and, you know, that that has to be important, even if it doesn't necessarily change the outcome. So I think what we're seeing is a kind of growing transparency around the issue, but still some uncertainty around exactly how transparent we can get.
0: Exactly. And I, I, I think, as you just mentioned, I think the question is now morphed into was there interference uh, to uh, how much yeah. interference was there. And, exactly. and you know, we, inquiring minds want to know if I can borrow an old phrase from bygone years. Right. <laughs> Laurie, as always, <laughs> thanks so much for this. Uh, have a great week. We'll talk again soon.
1: Excellent. You have a great week, too. Take care.
0: You, too. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We will deliver four additional Leopard 2 tanks to the armed forces of Ukraine and an armored recovery vehicle. This is in addition to the four Leopard tanks already in the region, which CAF members are right now training Ukrainian tank members to use. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau making the announcement late last week about uh, an increase of support for the Ukraine war, Uh, that of course on the anniversary of the war, which of course was this past Friday. A number of different uh, vigils were held right across the country uh, on behalf of uh, those who have lost their lives and those who are still suffering because of the uh, the Russian invasion. Uh, At a vigil for uh, Ukraine in Toronto last Friday evening, the Prime Minister was met with a stream of profanity-laden chants from a small group of protesters. And after a few minutes, well, the prime minister responded like this. This is a night for Ukrainians, not for you. If you want to stand and cheer with Ukraine, do that. You want to wave that Ukrainian flag, please do. But let people celebrate that Ukraine is still standing and Canada stands with it. Uh, different side of the Prime Minister, I guess, but I guess that everybody's got their 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 limit, I and uh, the, the yelling and screaming, I guess, uh, finally just got to him. Glad you're with us. This is the Bill Kelly Show, CFPL London, CHML Hamilton, uh, talking about Canada's commitment on the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, joining us to uh, get into some of the details that the Prime Minister announced and uh, some other, uh, I think, shows of support. Uh, pleased to welcome back to the program, Thomas Hughes, postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Defence and Security Network. Uh, Thomas, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today not at all delighted to join you thank you for having me uh enough is enough i guess the prime minister is getting tired of the, the protests especially uh the the well those are are still some people both here and in the united states uh that think it's about time after one year of uh, this war this invasion of ukraine uh that canada should decrease uh their support for ukraine uh, i'm getting the sense that uh that's not the message this government's going to give them no absolutely it isn't uh, but i think that it does
2: really highlight the the need, particularly in our democratic forms of government, um, to be really clear about uh, the goals, what we're spending money on, not just with Ukraine, but in, in uh, all sorts of other areas of spending, but particularly at the moment with, with Ukraine, um, what we're attempting to do with that money, where we see an end state, not necessarily giving a timeline, timelines are really dangerous, but if we can um, help people to understand what it is we're trying to accomplish, what that money is going towards, then the repetition of that message becomes increasingly important. We've seen Russia actually be, uh, in some ways, relatively effective in its use of information warfare in the United States, Canada, and and some of our allies in promoting narratives that are simply untrue. Um, People have started to accept those. If you look on Twitter, it's quite interesting sometimes to see the exact same phraseology around a particular issue appearing across multiple accounts that um, perhaps raise questions about certain things that are happening uh, in the war. Most recently, the absolutely ludicrous idea that that we don't have any footage of of the war from from Ukraine. That's appeared in lots of different places, and obviously, it's it's completely wrong. But but when those narratives start to take hold amongst certain portions of our population, as I say, it becomes increasingly significant that we do explain um, very clearly what it is that we're doing uh, and, and what it is that, that we're trying to accomplish. And I, I think, that to to give the Prime Minister some, some credit, I think he started to do that very well yesterday. Uh, and it is important as well to remember that um, the overwhelming support for continuing um, to to support Ukraine uh, that exists in, in Canada and the United States. There are some big vocal voices, but as we know, big vocal voices doesn't necessarily mean numerically dominant voices.
0: But, and I understand the connection here between the one year mm. anniversary and, and these uh, signs of of even further support from our government. Uh, mm. the, the Biden visit to, to Ukraine, I think, and, and, and to Poland, sent a pretty strong message as well that that NATO is in this for the long haul.
2: Absolutely, it did, and and frankly, I was a, a little bit surprised at the extent to which it did. Uh, I, I hadn't quite appreciated, I think, prior to his visit, just how significant that visit was, and it really has seemed to to um, catalyse that that further support and really um, convince people uh, that that the United States and by extension the others who are going to be supporting uh, Ukraine are are very much on side with that and it's not just not just words and i think we've seen from some of the dissenting voices in the us as well that 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 biden's visit has has convinced them too that, that the united states is committed uh, to continuing to support ukraine um i think it 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 has been a, a hugely important visit um for the 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 optics for the the general populations, but also in in really demonstrating that that commitment and as we know it 's always hard to to predict the future it 's always hard to know what decisions government governments are going to make in six twelve months' time uh, and so a commitment of this sort from from President Biden. Was really important, I think, in, in helping other NATO governments, um, within their internal discussions to come to agreement that actually they are going to, to set aside, um, significant sums of money, significant arms and ammunition and, and the like, um, over the next six, 12 months or, or however long it's needed. Um, but again, I think it, there was an interesting quote that came out this morning at the, the comments from NATO have been, um, as we're talking about, um, uh, we're going to support Ukraine for as long as needed. And that's fine. But actually, Ukraine needs stuff now. It's all right saying we're going to support them for as long as needed. But if that means a, a, a hugely extended conflict, well, that, that extends that that suffering. And actually, we need to be, if we are going to support Ukraine fully, we need to make sure that, that they are receiving um, more than they need in the very near future, uh, not just committing to giving it over the next 12 to 24 or whatever months.
0: And I think that was part of the message that, uh, that Zelensky gave to Biden when the, he was over there, wasn't it? That uh, they seem to be looking at, at this year, 2023, as very pivotal, don't they, Thomas? That, that this has got to end, uh, that they don't want this thing to drag out be- because it's, it's, first of all, bad news. I mean, it's war. People are dying on a yep. daily basis. But over and above that, uh, the longer this goes on, uh, it, it seems to just feed into the Russian strategy that we can just wear these guys down. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. I,
2: I completely agree with you. And I think that there's an understanding of that within Ukraine there's obviously that understanding of that within Russia I think they expected the the uh, support to to start to to dwindle and um, and again that comes back to the idea of uh, I think that's why it's really important that we set openly um the the end state that we anticipate here what is it that that we are going to be um pushing for um what is it that that looks like a, a an appropriate resolution to this conflict um because Ukraine needs to have that ability to to achieve that. Um, And we need to have clarity because that sets the the, the parameters for what equipment we have to send. Uh, And that helps us with our planning in in short. So I, I think that there's... Um, A real sense that this year is going, the next year is going to be very, very important. Um, I think we'll start to see as well, we've started to see some um, tactical changes from uh, the Russian side. Uh, We'll start to see more of their mobilized personnel reaching the battlefield. Uh, Remains to be seen what sort of equipment they have. Uh, But in that sense, I think it's also an important year to see uh, the degree to which Russia has been able to adapt to a, a very different fighting environment that they anticipated this time last year. So in that sense, it's also gonna be important not just what we can uh, provide to Ukraine to to help them support in their fight uh, against Russia, but also what Russia can bring to the the, the battlefield itself. Uh, So there, there are an awful lot of moving parts in here uh, and without that continued support to ukraine it is it is difficult for them to to carry on fighting so um the consistent messages of commitment i think are also important in in indicating to the russian population um the the russian leadership and as we talked about last week the the russian oligarchs that continued indication that support is is being provided to ukraine just to s- shift their calculus a little bit uh, and make them question their own government structures uh, and their own decision making at that government level uh, about the the direction of the war in ukraine and whether it's worthwhile them continuing to fight
0: i get the sense that there's a consensus among the nato countries though uh, thomas that that they this is the line in the sand that nato is drawing i mean they they saw yeah. crimea the belarus and and uh, they they know what russia's grand plan what putin's grand plan is right now mm. and i i get the sense that their strategy here is it stops here uh, you're not yeah. first of all you're not going to win this one and you're not going to do this anymore anywhere else
2: Yes, without I think that last that last phrase that you just used is, is really critical. It's that you're not going to do this anywhere else, and that comes to the, back to the question that's also really important: of why are we supporting Ukraine here? And it is, it, it, you know, we are giving a, an awful lot of money. We are giving an awful lot of uh, equipment, and that question of why are we supporting Ukraine is is important. And it's exactly as you just said: it's. You, This is the line in the sand. We cannot accept this as a way of doing business in international relations. This is utterly, it's not just inappropriate, but this is way beyond, way beyond what we um, could ever consider acceptable. And so... um, If Russia comes away with anything that can be seen as a success in this, that the cost-benefit to them is is in their favor, then it simply encourages similar behavior elsewhere uh, and would raise questions of, well, why are you supporting a different country in a a different circumstance? And and at at that point, then it becomes very difficult to maintain a a rules-based system, a, a, a global system of understanding that interaction cannot be uh, engaged in in this way and uh, exactly as you said this is this is crucial for for nato and the countries. more not just nato as an alliance NATO is the, the military alliance but the politicians of the countries who um, are members of nato do very firmly stand against this and i think it's also really important to note the un um, resolution vote that happened at the end of of last week uh, lots of the news around the, the the motion was about rejecting russia's invasion of ukraine some of the conversation around that was the countries who uh, voted against that. There were seven who voted against, and 32 countries who abstained from that. Um, but there are 141 of the UN members who voted in favour of that resolution. So there's this huge wave of of global condemnation. Of this form of action, regardless of the Russia-Ukraine point, it's saying this is utterly inappropriate. And then, when it comes to um, ensuring that it is not just seen as inappropriate, but is seen as uh, not being a way to achieve the results that you want in international relations, if we can take this off the table as a diplomatic op- option, if you if you want to call it diplomacy, extended uh, concept of diplomacy, then. There is this uh, there is this global support um, for ensuring that this can't happen anymore. And it may be a bit grandiose to say it, but we're at the forefront of that now in Canada. We are the, the bulwark that is
0: enabling Ukraine to continue fighting. And that's a big responsibility for us. I only got a minute or so left, here, a little more than that, maybe. Uh, but that message is not just for Vladimir Putin. It's also for China, isn't it? Uh, who, who seem to have eyes on Taiwan. And they're basically saying, oh, look at it, and don't you guys try anything. Uh, and which is, uh, dovetails into the story, of course, that uh, the Chinese and Russians are talking about perhaps the Chinese government supplying arms and munitions and, and heavy equipment uh, to the Russians for this war. Uh, what impact, if that happens, is that going to have? So um, on a a basic level, if if China does uh,
2: provide those weapons, then that does um, gives Russia a a far greater capability to extend the fight further. Um, Obviously, as we know, it's not just about the weapons, it's actually, can you use them on the battlefield? So that comes back to the the training. Um, But it certainly would enable uh, Russia to continue fighting. But that would be a huge step for China. China has been treading very carefully in response to to this war so far. Um, It has huge implications for China. So it would be a big step for, for China to to start arming uh, Russia or providing Russia with with equipment,
0: and with that come a number of other consequences uh, that are going to be discussed around uh, the security chambers, I guess, at the United Nations and other places for that matter. Thomas, thank you for this. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Appreciate the not time. Not at all. Thanks for having me. I'm glad that was useful. Take care, Thomas Hughes, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Defence and Security Network. We need to talk about the implications of this, as as Thomas mentioned. This is not just about what's going on in Ukraine, and that's not to 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 diminish the the impact of that on the ukrainian people and on what's happening with nato but uh, there are global uh consequences to this as well that i know canada is fully aware of and and we need to keep front and center you're listening to the bill kelly
3: show podcast on 900 chml
0: time for a look at what's going on in u.s politics and it's uh, been a busy couple of weeks of course for president biden uh with his surprise trip to ukraine and, and later to poland uh to talk about that and uh well the upcoming presidential race now a lot of other uh, related things so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, reggie giacchini reggie of course is the washington correspondent for global news in the u.s capital uh, reggie uh thanks so much for spending some time with us busy day down there glad you could join us for a few minutes good morning Let's talk a little bit about about the president's trip. It was a surprise, I guess, to many people for security reasons. You can't make these announcements and, and publish agenda like you could on many of these other trips. But uh, uh, he's back now. How did they play how, how, in the capital itself? Uh, were they surprised? Were they pleased with his performance in, in uh, Ukraine and in Poland? yeah, I mean, look, the the surprise
3: element kind of grabbed everybody with the exception of the very few, including the very few reporters who understood what was uh, going on at that moment. Obviously, again, security is the big reason to keep much of that. Uh, under wraps. Uh, the play, look, Democrats thought that this was arguably a good idea. Most Republicans also thought that this was a good idea. Some of them thought it was a little too late. Remember, there have been a series of Republicans who have gone to Ukraine over the last year and really have been pushing. For the president to do so, uh, there was a bit of pushback from some Republicans on the president announcing uh, another half billion dollars worth uh, of aid and logistical support to Ukraine. That is a fight that is going to continue, but at the end of the day, this showed uh, that there was still a Western wall of support backing Ukraine, led by the United States, then led uh, by NATO as a whole. It showed that. Despite what Russia has been trying to do for more than a year now, that there is not going to be this
0: kind of weakness that shows at least on the surface. How strong is is the the anti-Ukraine sentiment in the states? I mean, I mean, the U.S. involvement and the support that they're showing right now uh, is it just a loud minority? I know Ron DeSantis, uh, the Florida governor, uh, has been critical of the U.S.'s uh, involvement over there. Uh, is is that growing, or do you think that the the president's uh, visit over there last week? Uh, May have, you know, blunted uh, the, the, the instrument that they were using there.
3: You know, it's it's kind of like how politics has been in the United States for the last couple of years, where the fringe minority within a group oftentimes has the loudest voice and is able to make so much noise that they're able to start getting some attention. I don't know if it's going any further beyond that. There was some polling that came out a couple of weeks ago that showed that a growing number of Americans are getting weary of the amount of money that's being spent on uh, Ukraine, uh, and they're not in support as high as they were, say, in the months after this war started, but also at the same time, there have been defense officials that say if the U.S. is more transparent, uh, then it will assist in that, um, you know, information uh, transfer to the general public as to why this is important. In Congress, look, there are still a handful, and when I say a handful, I mean less than a dozen Republicans, at least in the House, who are really pushing for the government to cut back on the amount of spending, saying that this kind of, quote-unquote, blank check needs to stop being written or at least handed out. And you're right, Ron DeSantis is uh, is one of those. He's not a presidential candidate yet. He's a potential presidential hopeful, but he's the one using that blank check language to say that it needs to not go forward, even though in his previous political life, he was all for the transfer uh, of aid and funding to Ukraine. That may split him apart from where the broader
0: Republican Party sits. We'll have to wait and see on that one. Well, and of course, you know, it's the folks on Fox News are throwing gasoline on that fire, uh, the Tucker Carlson's and Laura Ingram's, et cetera, you know, with but some people are almost characterizing as pro-Russian uh, diatribes on, on their programs. And I guess that's, playing to that element, but your point's well taken. I mean, some of the strongest voices and support surprisingly have come from some prominent Republicans, uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, very strong support with some of the stuff he said last week. Absolutely. I mean,
3: look, between Mitch McConnell, between the former vice president, Mike Pence, between now Nikki Haley, who is uh, a a declared candidate in this. This is an older school style of Republican conservatism, where ultimately the United States and its interests are uh, held to a strong standard, but also that the United States needs to continue to be the leader of the free world. And that free world needs to ensure that it is not finding itself in any position that, you know, some hostile actor on the world stage is going to compromise that. So now that you have someone like Ron DeSantis, again, wildly toying here with the idea that he's going to throw his hat into the race here, breaking from where kind of the base majority uh, of the Republican Party stands, it does throw into question, well, what does this Republican Party, if it's trying to change itself over, actually mean? You have... Someone like DeSantis who's saying we need to stop funding Ukraine. Well, what happens if you stop funding Ukraine? Defense officials have said, well, Russia can get the upper hand. Russia could potentially win in Ukraine. Does that mean that they then move into Moldova? Does it mean that they move into the Baltic states or somewhere else within the Bucharest Nine? And this now expands because America has pulled back. Those are real risks that are, you know, being echoed throughout the Republican party and the broader public. Whether that's just some bluster from someone like DeSantis to ensure that the base is going to line up behind him, we'd have to wait and see. But ultimately, there is not a strong appetite in the U.S. to let Ukraine sink, but there is a fear that that could happen with some members within the GOP.
0: China's involved in this in in a rather bizarre way. I mean, it was kind of surprising. I think maybe even caught Biden off guard. Uh, China suggesting that perhaps they could be a broker here to try to settle some kind of a peaceful solution uh, to what's going on in Ukraine right now. Uh, The president seemed pretty skeptical about that, though, didn't he? Sure. Of course,
3: he's skeptical of it because, number one, China and the Chinese government has not formally recognized the fact that Ukraine has been invaded by Russia. Uh, I, I mean, that is a red flag to not only the United States, but to most of the Western world who has watched Ukraine fight for its independence for more than a year now and beat back on this Russian aggression. But at the same time, you have Beijing offering this, you know, 12 point peace plan to broker some form of settlement at the same time where China is now being accused of potentially preparing to arm with lethal weapons the aggressor nation uh, that has invaded Ukraine. So the president's skepticism is kind of broadly echoed around the Democratic Party and within some members of the Republican circle as well. How can Beijing uh, move forward with any attempt to settle peace when, number one, it doesn't recognize the invasion, and number two, it may assist this
0: invasion going further? Talk about the, uh, the political implications of, of Biden's mo- trip last week. Uh, he sounded strong. He looked like he was on his game with his his uh, meetings with uh, Zelensky and, of course, later in Poland. Uh, there's still, you know, is he going to run, not going to run debate going on in the States right now? I know his wife made some comments uh, the other day that seemed to indicate that maybe he's already made up his mind. But how important was it for him to be on the international stage and to kind of flex his his diplomatic muscle?
3: Well, I mean, look, this is a president who, at least in the eyes of some skeptical Republicans, and let's face it, even some skeptical Democrats, is too old for this job uh, and and you know may have been faltering. Despite the fact that he's been able to do some significant things legislatively on the domestic front and has been able to lead this international effort to uh, to support Ukraine, there have been questions about his age. And here we now had a president uh, who, in the middle of the night, took off, went to Ukraine, uh, and stood in the center of key. With very little visible security, uh, at least, Uh, you know, it's it's it would be impossible to imagine that there wasn't just a a ring of security kind of surrounding the city. But ultimately, this was uh, kind of that proof back to America that this president still has what it takes to lead the free world uh, and whether or not he's going to run. Look, you're right. The first lady sat down, gave a couple of interviews, said that, you know, it's fully expected. We did anticipate we were going to hear something from the president about a 2024 campaign, likely in the next couple of weeks, maybe by April. There's now rumblings in the White House that that may be pushed a little bit further later on into the late spring, maybe even the early summer. But the fact that it hasn't been i um, kind of definitively written off at this point. I think that this president is trying to show, look, look what I did for the first two years. It assisted America and the broader globe. I'm going to continue to try and do that despite Republican bluster, along with trying to ensure that Eastern Europe doesn't fall into the wrong hands
0: he's playing right into his wheelhouse though isn't he reggie i mean you know this is not new for for joe biden uh you know he was the chairman of the foreign relations committee in the Senate for years i guess and of course even under obama's administration as vp he did a lot of international work because of that reputation so this is this is maybe showing the american public or reminding them i guess that uh yeah we're we're still the international power we need to be and i'm the guy that can do that
3: Yeah, and I think that the fact that there is some of that bit of hesitation from the recent polling that came out that shows that fewer and fewer Americans want to see America involved in this war, and we've got to remember back, you know, going long before what happened with Russia invading Ukraine, the United States found itself involved in a number of wars where most of the American public didn't think that the United States should have had um, any kind of part. So there is a fear that the United States gets drawn in, which is why you've heard the president so clearly from the get-go say that there will not be boots on the ground, why there was such hesitation uh, to send even the Abrams tanks that are in there, you know, ultimately the U.S. giving in because it was kind of conditioned by Germany to do that. But but this president and this administration is trying to say, look, we are doing what we can uh, to ensure that this doesn't expand further. Ultimately, the card is going to be uh, in, in the Russian press. President's hand, And potentially even in the Chinese president's hand as to what moves forward and, and how the United States finds itself kind of tangled up in what could become a much further geopolitical mess. But this president is saying, I can do this, we can do this. And as defense officials have said, as long as they can relay that message to the American public, this should be an easier little bit of time, at least for the president as he tries to ramp up whatever his next political ambition is.
0: Well, let's assume for a second he goes in there and well, who's going to be the Republican nominee. Uh, you mentioned that uh, that Ron DeSantis has not declared. Everybody's expecting that he might. Uh, Nikki Haley has declared. Uh, but Donald Trump's still hanging around. I, I know there's a lot of Republicans, as you've been reporting, registered, that, that kind of wish he would just fade away, but he hasn't. He was in Ohio over the weekend at the site of the train wreck, uh, handing out uh, Trump water bottles, I guess, to, to people. Uh, is, is he still a factor? And is, is his very presence there holding back some of these other potential wannabes to, to Run for the Republican nomination? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, over the last couple of years, you've had members of the Republican circle,
3: at least in the Senate, really trying to boost themselves with a far broader national profile. Someone like Ron DeSantis or Governor, uh, uh, rather, um, uh, Senator Rick Scott or even Josh Hawley. These are people who were or still might be considered rising stars within a fragment of the Republican Party. But with Donald Trump still sitting at the top, And having so much of that base still circling around him, it makes it difficult uh, to find an inroad for someone in the Senate to go to. Sure, Senator Rick Scott, rather uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Tim Scott, is going to attempt to, to kind of break through that. But nobody else is doing that. Donald Trump still holds a commanding lead. And what does that mean? It means the base is underneath him and it's harder to pick off people to create your own base. And if you're finding it hard to find a base... How are you going to make it through to the end and ensure that that base is surrounding you on top of a whole bunch of other, you know, internal GOP rules that say that people need to rally behind just one candidate? uh, It makes it difficult for someone in the Senate to get up and, and take on Donald Trump. This is not 2016. This is not even 2020. This looks like it could potentially be one candidate from one party against one candidate from another party with very few people surrounding that pool.
0: Uh, we've got a minute or two left here. I want to jump into a story that I know that, uh, that you're working on right now. And that's going back to COVID and, and the pandemic and, and where COVID came from. Uh, it may have fallen off a lot of people's radar, but I know that as you've been reporting, a number of agencies uh, down in the States are still investigating how this actually happened, where it happened. Uh, any conclusive uh, evidence or any conclusions they've drawn from from all this investigation? So look, the Department of Energy,
3: uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, has some findings that says that COVID may have come from a lab in Wuhan, but not as part of some kind of biochemical, biomedical weapons program that it simply happened within a lab. This is something Republicans have been saying for the last several years. And while it was being pushed back on, it's because part of that narrative was Republicans thought that was being you know, created for some detrimental reason, not that it may have kind of slipped well in a lab and gone forward with this. Now, we should point out it's just The Wall Street Journal reporting this. And the Department of Energy's findings come with, quote, unquote, low confidence. They're also only one of two agencies across the broader administration that are making these kinds of findings. The FBI says they have a moderate um, belief in this. Agencies like the CIA haven't said anything because they say the information is simply not there. So this provides a little bit of ammunition for Republicans. It provides a little bit more uncertainty and, and, you know, muddiness for how this is going to be viewed by the American public. But it is starting to zero in to say, look, there's a real chance that this did come from China and that this potentially was accidental. The Chinese are still pushing back on this. We'll have to see what happens with this administration coming out now saying we're pegging
0: some of this on China. Fascinating story. And we'll be watching for your reporting on that on Global National, of course, over the next couple of days. Uh, Reggie, thank you, as always, for the time today. Have a good week and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.